Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. I am one of your hosts, David Clement, flying solo this week uh, while Yael is still gallivanting around the hills of Tuscany. Um, But I do have a great guest joining me right now, uh, Franco Terrazano. He is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, thank you for coming back on the program. Hey, it's my pleasure. And you know who wasn't flying solo, but who was gallivanting around the globe? It was the governor general. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, I mean, very, for those who don't know, um, I'll actually, you know what? I'll let you intro the story. So the governor general went on a trip. Where did she go? Who was with her? And what did they spend their money on? Yeah, well, you know, David, I do this for a living at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, talking about government waste, exposing stories of government waste. And and when this story popped by my newsfeed, even I was shocked, even I was outraged. Um, So what happened is that you have this relatively new governor general, Mary Simon, turns out her and 29 of her guests and passengers spent nearly $100,000 on in-flight catering services on a trip to the Middle East for a week. You know, it reminds me of the Anchorman. It reminds me of the Anchorman uh, part of the movie where he's like, you you did this and this. I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. Well, David, of course, I'm upset (laughs) as a taxpayer advocate, but it's almost impressive how they managed to rack up nearly $100,000 on in-flight catering services. I mean, it, it begs the question. I think well, it was what, 29 people or something like that? Yeah, it was 30 so it's, if you it's include what, the like, governor general. So, I mean, we're looking at like what? I think it's like close to three grand a person. Yeah, more what do you than eat? 3,000. I mean, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've flown to Dubai. I've flown it direct. It is a long flight. Yeah. Um, but I do not know if I am humanly capable of eating 30 $3,000 worth of food and drink, unless I'm like popping bottles of Dom Perignon eating caviar. Uh, <laughs> do you know, do, do, do we, I mean, we see the final bill. Uh, is there any type of level of inquiry that can go into, like the reason I'm asking this is because I think back to the, the $15 orange juice yeah. scandal years ago. Uh, we've certainly come a long way. Um, is there any way for us to know what they were actually eating and drinking on these flights? That is the first thing that I asked when I saw the total bill. We've got our investigative journalists looking into that. But I mean, me too, man. Like I- I've flown to Israel. I know it's a long flight. I know that you're eating some food. You're having some some Diet Cokes or whatever on the flight. Uh, but more than $3,000 per person is absolutely mind-boggling. So we're going to be looking into that. Um, but David, here's something else that we have to talk about too is that look the governor general her annual salary is north of three hundred thousand dollars so if she wants to you know eat some woof yeah if she wants to eat some fancy meals if she wants to drink some expensive drinks well why can't she just pay for it out of pocket why does it have to be expensed back to the taxpayer you know i'd go on a lot of uh business trips and when i'm out on on the road like sure i expense my employer for meals but if I want to go above and beyond, mm-hmm. I eat that. Like I just pay for that out of pocket. And, and 
we should expect the governor general, we should expect other delegate delegates that are being flown on the taxpayer tab to do the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, you you may you may expense a cheeseburger here and there, but you're not expensing the uh, 72 ounce ribeye. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And, oh, and let's, I mean, so I think there's a few things that we have to talk about here, right? Because this is a crazy story. I know when I first saw it, I was losing my mind. I know I've got some texts from some friends who aren't even in uh, as politically engaged and, and they're seeing this story. So I think it is, um, we do have to talk about, okay, well, how do we prevent this going forward? I mean, number one, we just need people in positions of leadership to <laughs> exercise just an ounce of common sense here. I mean, everyone knows that you shouldn't be racking up nearly $100,000 on in-flight catering and expensing it to your employer who's the taxpayer, especially after two years of lockdowns and restrictions where governments were telling people, look, mm -hmm. stay home when you, you know, zoom into meetings. So it's, and, and the government's also a trillion dollars in debt. So of course we need common sense at the top, but we also need some fundamental policy change. And that stops and starts with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, because this isn't the only type of crazy expense for governors general. Let me tell you another absolutely mind boggling perk. Former governors general, former, when they leave the office, they are still able to expense taxpayers for more than $200,000 every single year for the rest of their lives and up to six months after their death, their estate can still expense the taxpayer. So, I mean, look, I mean, taxpayers are hoping that these governor general, that they actually rest in peace and don't rack up too many expenses in the afterlife. But it's these type of expenses that need to change. And the onus for this type of policy change is on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a no brainer that you could just be like, all right, guys, your per diem is uh, 25 bucks a meal, no alcohol. You can get alcohol if you want, but you got to pay for it yourself because... I mean, look, I travel quite a bit. I am known from time to time to dabble in a, in a termy. For listeners who don't know, that's a, a, a beer in the terminal. It's one of my favorite beers. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you can't, you can't be uh, flying on, on the government jet um, and getting pickled on a flight and expensing, <laughs> expensing the taxpayers at the same time. Um, do you think there's any appetite in, in Ottawa to, like, rein this in? I mean, you've made a very good point about the governor general's salary. Uh, it's not like this is some volunteer position and, and the perk of the job is, is the ability to do stuff like this. She is paid um, very close to the same amount as the prime minister. Um, is there appetite to, to wrangle this in or to, to say, hey, this is getting a little crazy? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think that's probably the most important question, right? Um, I mean, if we just look at what's going on in Ottawa, or what has been going on during the Trudeau government, I mean, I think the clear answer is there hasn't been, obviously, right? I mean, look, the Trudeau government did a review of the expense program in 2018 after uh, former Governor General Clarkson, it was found that she was expensing taxpayers a ton of money. So they did this review. They had the review completed, I believe, in October of 2019. And the government hasn't moved on it. So, I mean, the only obvious answer to, to the question is that so far, no. Um, now, we are hearing some opposition parties, which include the bloc, that have pointed at some of the egregious 
examples of spending and expenses from the governor general. Of course, it seems to me, David, and, and, and if you if you think otherwise, let me know, but it seems to me that the Conservative Party is, is putting more of a microscope on government spending these days. So it looks like this could be something that the opposition could push. Um, but I think eventually there is going to be a reckoning, right? The government is a trillion dollars in debt. We're already paying $27 billion a year on interest charges. Of course, interest rates are starting to tick up. That's going to continue mm -hmm. to expand the deficit. And I think eventually we're going to find ourselves in the position of the 90s. And, and for your listeners who, who aren't aware, I mean, in the 90s, we saw different provincial governments that we saw the federal government of all different political stripes doing the same thing making some very, very difficult decisions because essentially bond fund managers push them into those decisions, right? So I think eventually mm -hmm. there is no way around it. The government is going to have to grapple with some of its waste and its budget. And this to me looks like the most prime area to look at the waste, to reduce some of these unfair extravagant perks and benefits. Yeah, and, and I think the scary thing about what you've just described is... Um, I mean, some people really don't like Jean Chrétien, some people do really like Jean Chrétien, but one thing that you can give him credit for is uh, when the weight of that debt hit Canada, they made some very tough choices. I think like cutting the Ministry of Transportation by like 40%. I don't, I, I mean, I would be shocked if Trudeau were to have the guts to do something like that and not just put the horse blinders on and plow through it. Um, because I mean, at least in my opinion, the the old business liberals uh, are gone. Um, the ones who were maybe socially progressive but uh, a little more fiscally minded, they seem to um, have fallen to the wayside. Um, to whatever, however you describe the party now, I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm worried that <clears throat> they just wouldn't have the guts to to make those tough decisions. Um, yeah, I mean, really. So when you mentioned the the debt servicing on on debt, can you conceptualize that for listeners? So, in relation to other things we spend money on, what is it more than so twenty seven billion? I think you said on debt. Um, how does that compare to what we spend on the military or health or anything else? Okay, let me give you a healthcare example, just because I have it off the top of my head. Sorry, I don't have all the budget numbers in front of mm -hmm. me, but. We are spending more on debt interest costs this year. So just more to cover the government's interest charges on the credit card bills, if, if I can use the analogy, this year federally than the Alberta government will spend in its entirety over the year on health care. So I, I think that kind of okay. paints a, a picture. I mean, this is money, of course, $27 billion. Money's fungible. It could go to healthcare for a province here. It could go to healthcare for a province there. This is a significant amount of money. And we have to remember, too, that, I mean, interest rates are still relatively low. Okay, so what happens when interest rates start to rise, as we can see in the news, that it looks like that's where we're heading? Well, it's just going to blow a bigger hole in the deficit. And, and I think there's an argument to be made that, look, the time when you should prioritize reigning in the debt, reigning in the deficit, is when interest rates are low. Because one, once interest rates mm -hmm. get high, it gets very difficult to really rein in the deficit. Now, you're talking about the ideology within the governing Liberal Party, but let me just paraphrase a quote from the former finance minister at the time, Paul Martin, right? The Liberal finance minister. He said something to the, to the extent of, look, deficits and debt, it's not ideology. 
it's a matter of arithmetic because eventually you get into the comp uh, the what what did he call it the quicksand of compound interest and so I think the point that we're trying to make is like, look, either the Trudeau government, which has shown no signs of doing this, makes some small, tough decisions now, or tougher decisions are going to get forced on Canadians. And that's exactly what we saw from the NDP government in Saskatchewan. The NDP provincial government uh-huh. in Saskatchewan was forced to shut down 50 hospitals in that prairie province. That is a huge impact on its citizens in a relatively medium-sized prairie province because they kept kicking the can down the road, down the road, down the road. And eventually the bond fund managers in another jurisdiction said, no, 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 you have to make some tough decisions right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's time to pay the piper. I think there was something similar in Ontario going back to when Bob Ray was the NDP uh, premier of the province, Ray Days was what it was called, and how that uh, upset public sector workers in terms of cuts and days that they would work that were not compensated and all that jazz. Um, so really, really uh, tough decisions to be to be made at the federal level. We got about a minute and a half here before we go to break. What are some of the things that the, the federal government could um, take a look at in terms of spending and cut in the short term? Okay, so I'm not sure how short term this could be. But the one thing that they have to look at, which we've kind of been talking about is labor costs, the cost of the bureaucracy, mm-hmm. we have seen it balloon in recent years. And what we've saw during COVID-19 was really a tale of two downturns. We saw the private sector take it on the chin, many people in the private sector lost their job, took a pay cut, maybe even lost their small business for good. In the government sector, we haven't seen anything like that. We saw members of parliament take three pay raises during the pandemic. Federally, we saw more than 300,000 federal government employees receive at least one pay raise during the pandemic. Not a single one took a pay cut. So what we need to see, I don't know, short, medium term, long term, is a return to fairness. You can't keep giving these government employees pay raises on the backs of their struggling neighbors mm-hmm. in the private sector. Yeah, that's a very good point. It makes me think of the the passport fiasco that's going on right now. And ministry that handles that said something like the majority, over 50% of those folks are still uh, working remote and it's causing staff shortages. And it's like, well, enough of that. Like, if you're not coming into work, you're fired and we hire someone new that is a job that requires you to process this paperwork verify identifications in person i'm sure there's some back-end stuff that can be done remotely um but yeah i mean the the federal labor force is is a is a, a good one you're right they didn't take a cut um throughout the pandemic but we'll we'll come back more to that um after the break And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. I am uh, joined by Franco Terrazano, probably one of the best names in all of Canadian politics and a bona fide friend of the show. We were talking federal politics, uh, government waste, uh, but in Ontario, uh, Doug Ford has won a majority government. Uh, I know that your organization has been uh, on his case in regards to how Ontario can right the ship, um, what some what some of those policy changes uh, could be in regards to alleviating some of the tax burden um, on Canadians. Uh, what what are some of the things that you think Doug should do with his new majority government? 
Well, I think today, and I mean today, I think he needs to live up to his promise and cut the fuel tax, right? He's been talking about cutting the fuel tax, making life more affordable for everyday Ontario drivers for quite some time. He said he's going to cut the fuel tax on July 1. But the thing that we, we keep saying is like, look, if you agree that cutting the fuel tax is necessary to provide relief, why are we waiting till July 1? I mean, I'm in Ottawa, and mm-hmm. I think the other day I saw gas prices over two, 210 a litre. You know, people are getting absolutely hammered at the pumps. And if you agree that the government could make life more affordable by reducing its tax take at the pumps, then, then why are we waiting until July 1 to cut the fuel tax? Just cut the fuel tax already. We've already seen the Alberta government do it. We've already seen it make life easier for Albertans. And we've also seen Newfoundland and Labrador just announced that it's cutting its gas tax. So Ford should be doing that immediately. Yeah. And I think that there's just a, there's a weird disconnect in terms of the pinch that Canadians are about to be in. I mean, if you're on a variable rate mortgage, your mortgage rates are going up, your gas expenditure um, over the last year and a half. I mean, I don't know what the lowest it got during COVID was, but let's say it's like 120. Um, so we're almost double, um, the low point for the price per liter, uh, over the last two and a half years. And so you have your gas expenditure doubling. People are going back to work, which for many Canadians means driving. It's getting tough. You have food inflation and prices going up virtually across the board. Um, are you seeing this disconnect in terms of, of legislators, whether they be federal, provincial, really failing to grasp what this pinch looks like for ordinary people? Oh, huge, huge disconnect. And and let's go back to the labor issue that we're talking about in government, because I think it ties in. You know, I mentioned just before the break that members of parliament in Ottawa have received or have given themselves three pay raises during the pandemic. Now we talk about reversing these pandemic pay raises. And one of the pushbacks I often get is, well, isn't it just symbolic? Well, first of all, symbolism matters. Leadership at the top matters. But number two, it's not just symbolism. What we have seen is that we've seen politicians financially divorce themselves from the realities facing the constituents that they're supposed to represent. They've essentially shielded themselves from a lot of the pain of the inflation, a lot of the pain from the tax hikes that they're imposing on other Canadians. So they're, in, to a large extent, shielded from a lot of the tough times that many Canadians are really facing because they don't miss a paycheck. They don't have to worry about job mm-hmm. insecurity. In fact, their pay continues to go up and up and up. And it's not just the politicians. It's also uh, the permanent bureau- bureaucracy class. Their pay continues to go up. They're not worried about losing their small business that they saved their whole life for, right? So I I think it ties directly into this, the whole labor issue where you have these politicians and bureaucrats that are shielded behind these the, the golden government gates. And then you have the rest of the Canadian population that, as I mentioned, pay cuts, job losses, losing their business. And now they're getting absolutely hammered by higher prices of gasoline, barely being able to afford the ground beef in the grocery court, uh, cart. Many uh, in their late 20s, early 30s who, who can't afford to buy a home. So there is a huge disconnect. Mm-hmm. And I really do think it comes to that private sector government divide. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. You mentioned homes. Um, I got to ask you, we keep seeing this home equity tax idea kicked around the idea because in Canada, uh, we do not uh, have any 
uh, capital gains tax on the sale of your primary residence. Um, how realistic is this? Is I mean, we saw it in the last election. We saw it come up. We saw the conservatives say the liberals were going to do it. We saw the liberals deny it and say, no, we're never going to do this. What's going on behind the scenes here that maybe people need to know? Oh, this is very concerning. This is very concerning. You essentially have the liberal MPs that are pinky promising that they they won't impose a home equity tax. But look, if, if the liberal MPs and if the Trudeau government want Canadians to believe that they're not going to impose a home equity tax, then they should stop acting like they're going to impose a home equity tax. So you have the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. It's the federal crown corporation whose primary objective is housing affordability. So they're funded in part by tax dollars and they use these tax dollars, 250,000 to fund a report that recommends a form of a home equity tax. And then they spent another $200,000 again from the taxpayer to understand the relevance of this report, okay? So on the one hand, you have a crown corporation that is actively funding home equity tax research, and then you have these liberal MPs who are saying, hey, trust us, trust us, no home equity tax is coming. Well, David, it turns out the CTF, we dug up these documents that show that staff in Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's office met twice with the group that received the funding to produce this home equity tax research. So you have these liberal MPs saying, hey, don't worry, nothing is happening. But the evidence on the wall says something completely different. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've heard arguments um, in the abstract, both for and against a home equity tax. Um, but it feels like something that would be absolutely crushing, given, whether it's good or bad, the way in which our economy is set up for many people, this is their retirement. Like our parents' generation, the sale of their primary primary residence and downsizing is essentially like a forced savings account that they cash out um, six, at 65, 70, et cetera. That way, I mean, I feel like it depends on what the rates would be, but I feel like this would be pretty devastating for those people who've relied on that. Um, is that your take as well? Yes, I mean, absolutely. There's, I have a bunch of different takes on this. So cut me off and interject when you need to. But I mean, look, when I hear about these home equity tax, I immediately think of the case of my mom. Okay, she, she worked her whole life, uh, many times as a single mother looking after my younger brother and sister. She now finally, after decades of hard work, finally has a home in southern Alberta. Now, when I think that, you know, she worked her whole life and she was sold on the idea that she will have to rely on her house as her nest egg to fund her golden years. And now I hear about these bureaucrats and potentially political mm -hmm. staffers musing about the idea of a home equity tax. I mean, it really boils my blood. The second thing that we have to understand, too, is that, well, many people who are looking to get into the housing market who don't come from these very wealthy families, they rely on their parents' help. To, to, to get the down payment, right? To, to be able to afford their first home. So if we now have the government going after these modest families when they sell their homes, well, it's gonna be make it different for the modest younger Canadian to be able to afford their first home. Because let's face it, if you're a middle-class Canadian, you probably need help from your parents or your grandparents to get into your first home. At least yeah. that's the situation that I experienced with my friends, okay? So it's, it is going to um, harm the modest Canadians trying to get their first home. The next thing I wanna talk about 
is that the report that recommends a home equity tax, surprise, surprise, acknowledges that a home equity equity tax would actually drive up the price. It's 50 pages in its own report. And there's a few ways that happens. Number one, you could get a part of the tax or the full tax added on to the sale of the uh, of the sale of the home, similar to mm-hmm. what happens with sales taxes, right? But number two, it could discourage people from selling their homes. People might just say, you know what, I don't want to pay the home equity tax. Maybe I'll just stay in the home. What does that do? Well, Limit that reduces supply. supply. Exactly. And and David, I know you know this probably more than any other Canadian, but what we need to do to to, to reduce um, home prices is, is we got to get Canadians in more homes. You got to build more homes. The CD Howe Institute, they estimate that all these government restrictions and barriers to development can add about $640,000 onto the price of a new home in a place like Vancouver. So that's hundreds of thousands of dollars that the government is doing to drive up the price of homes through these barriers. And now you have these bureaucrats funding report looking at taxes, which will make Canadians' lives even more expensive. Yeah, and when you look at it that way, and if we use the term government to incorporate all three levels, you you would, in theory, you have uh, in Toronto, they're something like doubling or tripling the development charges for new development, which is counterproductive given that we need new development. So... You, you have the government taking on that side, driving the price up. You have uh, transfer taxes, the government taking on the sale. You have the prospect of a home equity tax. Uh, so, again, taking on the sale. All while the solution to this problem looks us dead in the face, and it's just build more homes, just increase supply. We have the worst supply per capita in the G7, um, why don't we just, I mean, it's not like we're a small island nation. We're not Malta. Um, and, and yet many of our major cities operate as if we are, right? As if they're space confined and um, somehow triplexes or, or modest density are an assault on the community's character. And it's just, I mean, it means a lot for guys like us because we're in that millennial demographic. How many of our friends, family, et cetera, at our age are completely priced out of the market? And it's like, well, rather than all of these tinkering tax measures that are either counterproductive or just making life more expensive, why don't we just build more? Um, and and uh, it, it frustrates me. The I mean, the, organi- the, the Crown Corporation tar- tasked with housing affordability is just kicking around ideas to generate revenue um, when it should be kicking around ideas on how we get things built. Um, so uh, we, we've talked some of the federal stuff. We've talked housing. We have about uh, three minutes or so uh, before we got to go back to break. What are some of the other egregious expenditures that you are seeing these days? I know your organization has has dug up some uh, some scandals on the East Coast. Um, what's what's cooking in the CTF bucket these days? <laughs> well, we just hosted our annual Teddy Waste Awards, which which is sometimes the hardest day for the CTF. We go and we look over the past year, what, what was the best of the worst examples of government waste, right? And we do this battle royale where it takes us at least a day to, to narrow it down to just a winner in each category, federal, provincial, municipal. And this year's lifetime achievement winner, David, it kind of ties into what we're talking about, was Canada's climate delegations. Because 
in in the fall of this oh. year, we sent 276 delegates to the United Nations COP26 climate delegate delegation in Glasgow. Uh, so we sent the biggest of any G7 delegation, including the host United Kingdom. We needed to send two delegates for every delegate that the Americans or the Germans sent. So why are our delegates so uh, inefficient, you could say? But David, here's the real funny part of that story. Well, funny unless you're paying the bill, is that Freeland, our finance minister, stayed in the wrong city. She ended up staying in mm -hmm. Edinburgh and then took a luxury chauffeur service that cost $3,000 to get back and forth between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Now, some people say, well, hold on, Franco. Uh, maybe there wasn't enough spots in, the, in Glasgow. And you know what? That just doesn't pass the sniff test. I'll tell you why. She is the deputy prime minister of a G7 country. You're telling me that yeah. the deputy PM couldn't pull rank on a few bureaucrats and get a hotel in Glasgow. Second of all, maybe we would have more spots in Glasgow if we weren't sending all these bureaucrats <laughs> to the conference in the first place. So, <laughs> so a worthy recipient of this year's waste award. Uh, yeah, I saw that and it was like, well, not only is it waste, it also is entirely hypocritical in the context of flying across the Atlantic Ocean to, 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 to craft climate policy to stop people from doing what you just did and to stop people from doing what you and 200 other um, delegates just did. So, uh, Franco, it is, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. We always appreciate it. We'll be sure to have you back on because uh, it doesn't look like government waste is going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right. But hey, thanks so much for having me on today. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I'm very excited for our next guest. Uh, he, ho he holds his Ph.D., in plant science from the National University of Ireland in the beautiful city of Galway. Um, he is the, uh, he leads Morris and Associates. He has a, a CV in the cannabis industry that is far too long for a radio introduction. Dr. Shane Morris, thank you for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you very much, David, for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. Great. So uh, you wrote uh, what I thought was a great and very produ uh, provocative piece in the Financial Post um, titled Ontario's Soviet-Style Cannabis Monopoly. Um, explain to our listeners what is wrong uh, with the OCS, the Ontario Cannabis Store, for those who aren't familiar, and the way in which they uh, control how the legal market um, operates in the province. Yeah, certainly. Um, it, it absolutely was a, a, a pretty uh, inflammatory title on the uh, uh, on the article, but it was designed to do that uh, several days before uh, provincial elections. So, uh, and, but I, there is an evidence base to to support that title, and I can certainly tell you about that a little bit. So. Um, the OCS, uh, the Ontario Cannabis Store, uh, is an organization that is publicly funded. Um, it is a, a government organization that uh, kind of came into existence uh, uh, between 
two different governments at the provincial level. Just to give you an understanding of why it's important, first of all, it's uh, in Ontario, there's about $1.5 billion worth of cannabis sales per year. That's B with a for billion. Um, so it's it's a quite a large uh, market uh, for anything uh, for a relatively small population of Ontario. Um, so it was originally designed uh, in and around uh, legalization uh, of cannabis for at the federal level, uh, based on the old and somewhat archaic model of how Ontario uh, sells alcohol, which uh, harps back ninety five years. Uh, I, I believe it's the uh, it's the anniversary for the uh, LCBO the, at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, the Liquor Control Board um, stores. And certainly what's happened is that they have a model in, in alcohol, which they uh, in the previous government in Ontario was just going to simply cut and paste and apply it to uh, cannabis, which is uh, wholesale. The government uh, controls wholesale and then they own and run the stores uh, with uh, publicly funded staff. So uh, you just can't go into a Walmart uh, and buy alcohol in, in Ontario. Uh, certainly they in recent years, they started um, loosening up some certain uh, uh, you know, retailers, uh, grocery mm-hmm. retailers to allow very small amounts of alcohol to be sold. But uh, unlike most places in the world uh, where you can go into uh, uh, into an actual uh, convenience store, mm-hmm. uh, gas station, uh, grocery store and, and pick up a bottle of wine, bottle of, a couple of cans of beer, you can't do that. So this model of complete control of wholesale, so there's only one buyer, uh, and then control of the actual uh, stores is quite, I would argue, uh, an intriguing model that dates back uh, and is quite archaic in its approach. So the previous government in Ontario were simply going to do that in cannabis, but there was a change of government and a conservative government came in and uh, they were left in a situation where there was actually some of the stores had actually been bought by the taxpayers <laughs> and the organization was uh, well underway to creating uh, a, a, that cannabis uh, monopoly for mm-hmm. uh, the province of Ontario. And uh, But the can- but the conservatives said, oh, you know what, we're going to allow legal uh, private stores to be the uh, point of sale. So someone like you and me could apply. First of all, it was a lottery, and then there was a process where we could apply to actually own a cannabis store. Uh, But they maintained full control of the wholesale. And um, right, that worked out well at the time. Well, some people argue because there was a very quick, and to be fair, it was a very rapid uh, turn on of the cannabis uh, value chain for retail. Uh, And it had to be done quickly. However, now uh, this uh, monopoly, the state-run monopoly, Soviet-esque, I would argue, uh, is being run in a, in a manner that uh, leaves lots of questions uh, to be raised, specifically around uh, the high margins that are being applied, uh, mm-hmm. the lack of um, innovation uh, around what products get to market and why, uh, a lack of transparency, uh, and uh, just general uh, operational uh, 
issues that are uh, that is really stifling i would argue the cannabis industry that's trying to grow and expand and uh, 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 look at novel ways to to approach this so you know, there's some big issues they're taking you know up between 40 and 50 percent just on markup for wholesale so remember mm -hmm. they're not doing that those stores anymore they're just wholesaling so if i was to sell you uh uh you know 30 grams of uh, cannabis uh, uh, you know, as a retailer, I would actually have to go through and first of all, sell it to the government and then they would turn around and sell it to you. But in between, they would potentially mark up 25% on that just for wholesaling. Yep. Uh, so other provinces in, 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 in Canada actually also have this model, but they take a much lower cut and it's much more reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, and we're seeing quite a, a number of problems as a result. Do you, do you think there's maybe a blind spot? Um, this was one of the arguments I always made in the lead up to legalization was we have to keep the government's take small, not because the government gener generating revenue is inherently bad, but because there's an alternative for consumers that they've been using for decades, which um, the more the government taxes or, or adds a markup, uh, the harder it is for the legal market to compete. Is that something you see as a as an externality of these exorbitant prices because of the way the province runs the wholesale system? Absolutely. And uh, other, so Ontario, I would say, is the worst uh, case scenario where they are just taking uh, a big cut and the price is the price. And there's no real nuance to your argument, for example, of competing with the actual competition, which mm -hmm. is the black market. Um, yeah. So, for example, um, you know, other provinces such as British Columbia must take a much lower cut uh, on the basis of understanding uh, that they will, over time, increase their cut, uh, and they run stores in British Columbia mm -hmm. uh, as well as the wholesaler. But they wanted, they knew if the, if it, if legalization and the experiment that is legalization was to be successful it needed to be successful quickly and hit the ground running and to do that it, you needed to be able to compete with your real competitor which is the black market and british columbia has done that quite well prices are much lower across the board for all types of products uh, and then there's of course you know to extend your uh argument which i fully agree with a little bit is around okay can you have smarter pricing uh for public health reasons. So, mm -hmm. you know, the margins, I would argue, for something like an edible or non-inhalable or non-smokable product, you know, really, if you're a publicly run organization, you should be putting that, you know, those margins much lower yeah, for of course. edibles or what I would quote unquote safer products. And on a scale of risk, they certainly are yep. safer. Yep. Uh, but in actual fact, what we're seeing in Ontario is the reverse. They're, you know, they're trying to, uh, the margins on, edibles are you know in excess of you know of all of the other margins uh i'd say with topicals and you know so, some of these new product areas and certainly so um you know it's quite interesting to watch that there wasn't any even that smart kind of approach to okay if we are going to take margins you know you know are we going to be smart in macro as you said to compete with the actual black market and yeah. then are we, are we smarter to have actual focus on you know where can we uh push public health or nudge you know yeah 
you know, uh, in certain ways. I mean, yeah, that's a very good point, because if the government's going to be in the business of nudging, which it certainly is in various other aspects, um, you would assume that they would take um, the SKUs available via the OCS and and create a, uh, a margin system uh, or the government's take in proportion to the risk associated with consuming, obviously, edibles, beverages, and things like that being significantly less risky um, for consumers from a public health perspective. Um, has there been any response or pushback or positive um, uh, feedback in regards to your op-ed and this argument? Because it has been made before, but I would, I would say that um, yours was particularly punchy. Um, and so I'm hopeful that, that this will at least catch the ear of, of some of the people who make the rules now that uh, Ford is going into another majority government. There are big decisions they have to make in regards to alcohol, letting the master framework agreement expire with the beer store. Are they going to build more LCBOs or let private stores fill the void? It kind of felt like um, when they when they very quickly moved from the Kathleen Wynne plan they, they almost got there. They didn't go with the LCBO style, which I think was probably good for consumers, but they didn't quite go all the way in terms of taking themselves out of the wholesale uh, steps. So has, yeah, has, there any, has there been any positive feedback or response yet um, from the folks who are in this space? So look, uh, I'm a long time bureaucrat. Uh, so there's two ways a bureaucrat can look at this if they're being criticized. Uh, they can say, crazy guy, uh, he's always moaning. Uh, that guy is just a talking head. He's just an agitator. Uh, and part of the reason why uh, I was in just a order, Deepak also grow yep. because if I just write it, Deepak writes it, they just say, he's just crazy, don't mind him. But if some more people start writing these things and start seeing the evidence base and are agreeing with it, then, then they can. But then there's the other type of bureaucrat, which I hear from quite a bit. It's the kind of like, look, Shane, that was pretty harsh. Uh, you know, however, it has given us fuel to catalyze conversation internally, right? Because yep. we can now point to to, uh, to this to our political masters and say change has to happen, uh, mm -hmm. and then we can have those conversations. Uh, and you know, the the article was designed in such a way that it, you know, it, it, uh, having me on the receiving end of these for many many years, uh, I I know how to just get the right keywords so it shows up in the right places. <laughs> <laughs> and the timing is key. Uh, so it's certainly, um, uh, you know, when more people are sensitive to things around yep. election time. So, you know, there's ways to do it. So I've heard uh, both, uh, you know, so there, you know, but certainly I think uh, we're trying to provide a catalyst to at least start the conversations on how this mm -hmm. is going to change. I'm on record of uh, saying I don't, you know, quite frankly, uh, I don't believe uh, the LCS should exist. Period. Yep. There's no need for it. Um, yep. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's... I'm a big it's, believer in, in government. Yeah. I was going to say, it's funny that you say that because I have this conversation when we talk about this. Um, we have about a minute and a half before we go to break, but there's nothing... Removing the government as the wholesaler, whether it be cannabis or alcohol, does not remove the government's opportunity to generate revenue. It just allows for them to generate revenue with all the crazy overhead that goes into running the warehouse. A hundred percent, which they're not very good at it, but it seems. So, um, you know, for me, uh, if someone can tell me what the 
benefit is uh, from either a public health or financial purpose of having um, government involved in wholesaling. Uh, I'm all ears because I don't see it. And, uh, and I'm a big believer government can do certain things that private yeah. can't, but this is not one of them, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it, it almost feels like like it was an olive branch to the prohibitionists in a sense where, yes, it's going to be legal, but don't worry. We'll, we're going to control the market. Everything has to go through us and, and we'll make a lot of money off it. But in reality, we're talking about heavily scrutinized and regulated licensed producers, the folks who actually produce cannabis. Uh, obviously, there have been some examples of bad actors, but generally speaking, these people had to go through a lot of hurdles to be able to grow cannabis. And so it seems like um, we, we would all be better off and it would be just as safe if we would uh, remove the government from being the middleman. Let business-to-business -business transactions exist without that. Um, well, whether we get there, I'm not sure, but Dr. Morris, it was a pleasure uh, to have you on Consumer Choice Radio, and I'm sure we'll have you back. Well, thank you for the time, and uh, always happy to talk all things cannabis.